this morning, I am pleased to announce that we have a good friend, a friend of mine, and Mr. Dimas and several others that we know, Jim Stensinger, they, were, they work close together. Brent Small is the VP of HR at Southern Seminary, and so I'm thrilled that you're here today. Brent is married to Kim, has four children, and uh, I have heard great things about Brent. I've, I've been around Brent and done, I've been to a lot of functions with Brent, but I've never had the opportunity to hear you preach, so we're looking forward to that this morning. Come on up, Brent, and preach the word for us this morning. Thanks, Troy, and uh, thank you to all of you for this invitation to be with you this morning. It's such a joy and a privilege. Uh, pulling up today reminded me of the church that I pastored for nearly seven years, where we met in a building similar to this and uh, had a trailer outside that we emptied every Sunday and set everything up. So it's such a joy to be in a church um, of this type this morning in preaching. I just want to extend uh, welcome from my family. None of them were able to come with me this morning, unfortunately. Our two older kids who go to Boys College, uh, we, we attend First Baptist Church at Fisherville on a regular basis. We're members there, and uh, my older kids that go to Boys College, both were serving this morning. My son running the sound, daughter serving in the nursery, so they weren't able to come. And then uh, our two other children are two boys that we adopted from China. So Peyton in 2014, Sawyer in 2015, and uh, both of them have developmental issues and some special needs that we have to care for. And so my wife is home with them this morning. It's difficult for them to come for an hour and a half uh, and, and be in church uh, in that type of setting. So uh, you can pray for my wife, Kim, as she cares for them, and especially for uh, our little one, Peyton, who deals with so much anxiety and uh, post-traumatic stress issues from being in the orphanage and uh, being abandoned in China. But he's, he's such a, a joy to us, and uh, it's hard to see him struggle at times. He was up at 3.30 this morning. Uh, so he's going to put in a full day today, uh, along with my wife and I. Uh, the text this morning that I've chosen is First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to First Thessalonians chapter 3. I had an opportunity some time ago to preach uh, from this text. And I really decided to go back to this text. Really, the Lord led me to go here this morning because not only did I want to challenge all of you from the Word of God, but I also felt like I needed a challenge by the theme of these particular verses. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to kind of dive right into the middle of Paul's letter here and unpack what he has for us. Let's just read, uh, let's pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 2, and then let me read through verse 5 of chapter 3, and we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word of God. The title of our message this morning is, the question really, do you love the church? And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul writes this, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, 
so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know what we have been destined, that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason. When I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Let's take a moment by our heads and hearts in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning of worship. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as your church, believers bought by the precious blood of Christ, Father, whom you have raised from spiritual death through regeneration, through repentance and trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ by faith, our sins having been forgiven, our hearts and our souls being washed clean of sin, and it's judgment to come. Father, we pray now that you would take this text this morning and this message and apply it to our hearts in such a way that we could run the race of this Christian life in such a way as to excel still more and bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was in September of 1999, and my wife and I actually lived in South Florida at that time. And I had just begun a job as the associate pastor at Crossroads Roads Community Church in Palm City, Florida. Palm City, if you're not aware of Palm City, Stewart, it's right on the southeast coast of Florida, just north of West Palm Beach. And in September of 1999, at the peak of the hurricane season, uh, hurricane Floyd, that was a Category 5 hurricane, was fastly approaching the southeast shores of South Florida. Uh, in fact, that hurricane was, uh, had a bullseye, had Stewart and Palm City right in its bullseye, so we were in the direct path of this very large, very damaging Category 5 hurricane. So we began to make preparations. And as we prepared our home, but more than even that, we had a bigger challenge at the church. Because at the church at that time, we were uh, building a building. We had this construction project going on. And it was a little bit unique because we were taking this 50 by 100 foot pavilion building. So it had a, had a floor, had a pavilion structure like a carport over it, and we used it for outdoor activities for the church. But we were going to take that building and enclose it. We were going to add 50 more feet to it, enclose it, and make it a full indoor uh, fellowship area. And so we were beginning to go through the permit process to add the extra 50 feet onto it. But while we were waiting for that, we were able to go ahead and begin the remodeling process of the structure that was there. And so all this work had been done to enclose the, uh, the end of the structure, bathrooms, facilities, all the internal parts, uh, insulation, electric, plumbing, all of it. Drywall was up, but we were still waiting to add the last 50 feet so that we could finish the building. But, and it was on the east end of that building that it was completely wide open still at this point. So imagine you have a 50 by 100 foot building. Uh, it's almost completely finished on the inside, yet it has a one entire wall, a 30 foot high, that's completely exposed to the elements. There was just a little bit of a section uh, coming down that was a part of the pavilion to protect the inside. So we had a major problem at the church with this building in light of this hurricane to come. This east end 
of the building was not yet fully closed. And really one major gust from a Category 5 hurricane would have blown the building completely apart. It would have blown it right off of its foundation. And it's the backdrop and the setting of that story is where we really find the church in Thessalonica at this point in its history and in this situation in our text this morning. This brand new body of believers in Thessalonica, they were still under construction. They were literally just babes in Christ. They were infants in Jesus, possessing a faith that was still in need of strength and stability. It still needed a strong foundation strong outer, wa outer walls of the truth of God's word. And it was really, as you might remember in reading this letter and in Acts chapter 17, it was through the preaching ministry of Paul and Silas and Timothy that many had come to faith in Thessalonica and this church was born. But immediately this church encountered hurricane force persecution. So they were under construction, they were babes in Christ, and as soon as that happened, they under... They were undergoing persecution almost immediately. The story is found in Acts chapter 17. And we, you'll, know, you'll remember that the Jews in that city became very envious of Paul. They did not like his message. They, they were against the gospel. And they did not like the fact that people were turning away from Judaism and from idolatry to the Christian faith. And they became envious of the fruit of Paul's ministry. So what did they do? While they were mature about it, they started a riot in the middle of the city. They go to the house of Jason, who was one of the new converts in Thessalonica. They were seeking Paul to drag him out into the marketplace. And, of course, the marketplace would have been where everyone was gathered in the city during the daytime. And they literally start a riot. They're shouting. They're causing an uproar. But most importantly, as Luke records for us in Acts chapter 17, they are accusing all of these new Christians of treason. Because listen to what they said. These, this is a direct quote, these men are preaching another king, Jesus. And we have only one king, Caesar. We have only one king, and that's Caesar. This is the worst possible charge or accusation they could bring against these new followers of Christ, against Paul and his companions. In fact, it was the very same charge that finally convinced Pilate to send Jesus to the cross. Because the Jews said, if you don't send him to the cross, we will tell everyone that you are no friend of Caesar. And Pilate finally gave Jesus over to be crucified. They were being accused of treason in Thessalonica. And feeling the pressure of this riot, feeling the pressure of this uproar in the city, you remember that Paul and Silas and Timothy were sent away by the darkness of night for the fear of their lives and the fear of what might be done to them. So if you would imagine the scene, it's a brand new church, it's under construction, they're barely in Jesus at this point. And now the hurricane force persecution has come against them. It has made landfall, and their shepherd, who was there to protect them from this storm, has, had, has been sent away by the darkness of night, and they are left there alone against the storm by themselves. Now Paul, in the midst of all this, having been separated from the Thessalonians, so abruptly he was agonizing over them. He was agonizing over them. These were his children in the Lord. 
As we learn in chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, if you go back and read that section, he, he talks in such paternal and familial language there. He was agonizing over them in this way. He was really so vexed with emotion, as we just read this morning in chapter 2, verse 17, he states that he had been taken away from them. Look, look back at verse 17 for a second, but I want you to see the force of this word. Paul says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit. Now look at that verb there, having been taken away. That is a strong Greek word here. It's full of emotion that really doesn't come through in the translation. It literally means or it carries the idea of being violently separated from someone. The children being violently separated from their parents, literally being orphaned from them, being abandoned from them, and the emotion that comes along with that. That was the emotion Paul was feeling as he was sent out of town by night, being violently taken away from these new believers in Thessalonica. Now listen, this is important. And this goes to the, the theme of our message this morning. It, it's really in the backdrop of Paul's emotional state over being separated from the Thessalonians when they needed him the most that we learn very, we learn something very important about Paul's heart that really challenges our hearts. And it's this, Paul deeply loves the church. The Apostle Paul deeply loves the church. Paul loved them so deeply that he was not going to allow persecution under the direction of Satan himself, as we'll see later, to move the Thessalonians away from their faith, of their faith and to fall away from Christ because he loved them. So what does Paul do? Well, he moves into action. His love for them moves him into action on their behalf. And that's what we're going to see here in verses 1 through 5 this morning. But before we do that, we need to stop. We need to pause. Listen, we need to ask ourselves this question. Do we love the church? Do you and I love the church? And do we love it in the way that the Apostle Paul models his very own love for the church. Now, I have no reason to believe here this morning that all of us don't love the church. I believe that we all do. But to what degree do we love it? To what degree do we love it? What are we willing to, what is it willing to cost us to love and care for the local church? Most of us would say, yes, we love the church, but how deeply do I love it? You know what? We have an answer to that question this morning because we have, we have some expressions of love by Paul here whereby we can measure our own love for the church. So this morning, I want you to have that question in mind. Do I love the church and how deeply do I love it? Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And this is the goal. Let me give you the outline for the morning. In 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 1 to 5, we find four expressions of love, four expressions of love for the church that really call us to excel still more in our own love for the church. Four expressions of love for the church expressed by Paul in this section that call us to excel still more in our own love for the church. And as I said earlier, I'm preaching to myself this morning. 
I want to step back. I want to look and see how I'm excelling in my own love for the church and be called to excel still more. Let me give you the first expression. The first expression of love is going to come out of verse 1. It's this. Love ignores the personal cost. Love ignores the personal cost. Love ignores the personal cost. This first expression of Paul's love should not surprise us because the essence of love really is the denial itself. It is the sacrifice itself. We know this. But here I want us to be challenged by this aspect of ignoring the personal cost to ourselves when we choose to love others in this way. Paul, verse 1 of chapter 3, says, Therefore, stop right there. That therefore points us to action. It points us to a decision that's about to come. In the context here, it signals to us that Paul is about to take action on behalf of the Thessalonians. Look what he says right after that. He says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, when we could endure it no longer, remember Paul was violently separated from them. He was sent out of town overnight. Now he is strained for his concern for the Thessalonians. This word endure here, we can endure it no longer. It's, it carries the idea of remaining under pressure. Remaining under the pressure of hostility, for example. Remaining under the, the pressure of emotional distress and bearing down under that. He is, he is strained by this pressure. He has been remaining under this pressure from the moment he left Thessalonica by the darkness of night and, and he's feeling that pressure like a, a child a parent would feel it if a child has gone missing or a child has been violently kidnapped and separated from their parent he was under extreme emotional distress and now he's at the breaking point in a positive way he's at the breaking point and he must act he said when we could endure it no longer Look back at verse 1 again. What does Paul do? He says, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. Now look at that last part. Be left behind at Athens alone. Paul is now in Athens. Paul and his team, remember they were run out of Thessalonica. They immediately go to Berea, preach the gospel there. See, the Bereans come to faith in Christ. But the angry Jews in Thessalonica were so angry, they followed Paul out of town. They followed him to Berea, and Paul had to leave Berea before they got there. And once they got to Berea, what do you think they did? Well, they were real adult about it. What did they do? They started another riot in Berea over the gospel. And so Paul was being pursued by hostile men, these hostile Jews. So he left Berea and went to the sea. Then he went on to Athens, and it's here in Athens that we find Paul as he penned their circumstances in verse 1. But the point we need to know is, see, is this. He is in Athens. Now he's going to be left alone, but his life is in danger. Real danger. His life is in real danger. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, <coughs> Paul talks about his circumstances often as he ministered the gospel. And he says there in verse 23 that he was often in danger of death. That's what we need to understand is going on here with Paul in Athens. He is in danger of his very 
own life. There's no reason to believe the Jews were not far off of his trail as he is in Athens. But what does Paul do? What does Paul do? He sacrifices his own safety. He would rather be alone in Athens in fear of death than allow the Thessalonians to go on another moment unprotected. To let them go on another second without their faith being protected. In fact, look what Paul says in verse 1. He says, we thought it best to be left alone. He thought this was the best possible option to leave himself in Athens alone, fearing for his own life, yet caring for the church in Thessalonica. He says, we thought it best to be left alone. So Paul here, at any cost to himself, was willing to sacrifice for the Thessalonian church, the believers in Thessalonica. He loved them in such a way that he ignored any personal cost to himself. And of course, he loved all of the churches whom he ministered in that way. And the personal cost here is, in fact, his own safety, his very own life. His very own life. We see this a whole concept of loving the church in such a way that really ignores the personal cost. There's another example of it, and it really is the Thessalonians acting in a very similar way to another group of believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes here to the Corinthians concerning the Thessalonians. He says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Thessalonica was a church that was located in the Macedonian region, so they're included in this. Verse 2, he says that in a great ordeal of affliction, so while they were suffering persecution, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Think about that. While they were suffering persecution, while they were now in, in some sense, part of that persecution was probably they lost their job, they may have lost their businesses. We, find, we learned here that they were now in poverty. But in verse 2, we learned that in a great ordeal of affliction, out of their abundance of joy, their poverty overflowed in giving to other Christians. And in fact, this was the offering Paul was taking to relief for relief of the Judean Christians who were under persecution as well. We see here the Thessalonians themselves at the, the personal cost of loving the church, fellow believers in Judea, they gave everything they had financially to care for them, ignoring the personal cost. To themselves. And so we have to ask the question, beloved, this morning. I, I hope you're challenged by this because I'm challenged by this. Do I love the church in this way? That I ignore the personal cost to myself? Because there is a cost, right? There's a cost. As I thought about how we could apply this expression specifically, Think about in our culture, in our lives, what, what are the things probably most precious to us? Well, probably our safety, number one, our time, number two, and our money, number three. At least in the top five, we'll probably find those three. 
Do we love the church enough, listen, to add to it through evangelism, which could cost us maybe at times some safety, certainly at times some ridicule or whatever else we might endure in that situation? Do we love the church enough to give financially to the point that it costs us personally, that it hurts when we give to the church or for some relief of somebody in the church? Do we love the church enough to give of our time, time that costs us, time that we are sacrificing to the point that it, it hurts? Our flesh says, no, I'm not giving up that time. That's mine. Are we willing to love the church in a way that gives up that time, beloved? I'm challenged by these questions. I think we have to think through these questions. Our first expression of love here, modeled by Paul, for the church is that love ignores the personal cost. It ignores the personal cost. Let me give you the second one. The second expression of love in this text is this. Love meets a need with the very best. Love meets a need with the very best. If there is a need in the church, do we provide only the leftovers of our time, talent, resources, money, whatever you, you fill in the blank? Do, do we meet that need with uh, the proverbial uh, duct tape and bailing wire? Paul doesn't do that here. He does quite the opposite and quite far from it. Paul loves the Thessalonians by meeting the most pressing need they have with the very best. Look at verse 2. And he says, when we can endure it no longer, we decide to be left alone at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy. Our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Remember the church is still in its infancy here. And Paul knows that their most pressing, their most immediate need is that their faith needs strengthening. They need establishment in their faith. So he sends Timothy. Look at that phrase there in verse 2. God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Look right here to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. This idea here of strengthen means to establish something. To establish it. They desperately needed a foundation of biblical truth built into their new faith in Christ. At least at a minimum, they need to understand what is all this, all this persecution going on. We, we come to Christ, and we have a new King Jesus, and we're forgiven, and all the things that comes with it. But yet now we're facing all of this earthly disturbance. They needed a, a theology of that at a minimum. So they needed their faith strengthened. They, they needed the, this idea of putting rebar in the concrete to make it strong. They needed the, the rebar of the truth of God's word into their faith so they could withstand the storm of persecution. They had been left exposed to deception and possibly turning away from Christ in the state that they were in. The second word here, he says, to strengthen but also to encourage they, this idea of encouragement here really is the idea of coming alongside and, and comforting. While strengthening, they need somebody to comfort them amidst all that they were 
going through. And certainly the truth of the word of God in their situation would bring comfort to their hearts. How would it do that? Look at verse 3. He says, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. So the strength and the encouragement, the establishment of the truth, the comfort of the faith and the truth they would be receiving, then they would be able to not be so disturbed by these afflictions or, in fact, be deceived by them. That, in fact, something bad had come upon him, them, and maybe Paul's message was, in fact, not true at all. In the worst-case scenario, they would turn away from Christ. In fact, the, uh, the affliction here, maybe it was causing doubt or really causing them to believe uh, that this was a false message. The Jews, in fact, were trying to destroy Paul's character by saying he was a false prophet, a false teacher, and he defends himself in chapter 2. That's what that whole section there at the beginning is about. They say, see all this affliction? Because of this gospel, you are believing, turn away, and all will be fine. But no, Paul had told them they would be destined for this, like our Savior. And we'll see that in just a second in verse 4. So as Paul struggled over the, the Thessalonians, he knew their need was to be strengthened in the faith to, to avoid being deceived. And so when he could endure it no longer, he would send someone to care for them. He would send someone to care for them. Who would he send back into harm's way? Who would he send back onto the trail to Thessalonica, knowing there were evil men, Jews, trying to chase them down, harm them? He's going to send someone back to care for the Thessalonians so their faith wouldn't be destroyed. Who would he send? The new believer? The rookie? No. Look who he sins. Absolutely not. Paul sends the very best to meet the most pressing need. Go back to verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother, certainly Paul and Silas, they sent Timothy. Timothy was their partner in the gospel ministry. He was their Christian brother. It was the, he was a Christian brother of the Thessalonians, of course, being united in Christ. But more than that, we must notice this title he gives to Timothy beyond the fact that they were Christian brothers. He says, we sent Timothy, God's fellow worker. This is a, a bold statement by Paul. This is a bold title by Paul given to, in regard to Timothy. These were not just mere throwaway words describing his role. Timothy was more than a brother. He was called and equipped, as was Paul, as a co-worker and co-laborer with God himself in the gospel ministry of Christ. Paul uses this very language of his team in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. And so certainly here the title he gave to Timothy was to give Timothy credibility as he goes back into the city, to the church. He is God's fellow worker. You must listen to him. He will teach you the truth of God's word. But it also signals something else for us, a deeper implication. Timothy, while not being called as an apostle, Paul gives them this title, God's fellow worker. He is regarded by Paul, by his team, certainly by the churches of one of God's very best ministers of the gospel.
And what does Paul do? Well, he sends the very best. He sends Timothy back into harm's way. He sends the very best person he could send to meet their need. Timothy, God's fellow worker, to strengthen them in their faith. So we stop here and we say, do we love the church in this way? Do we give our very best? Do we give our very best? I had a friend once, I was listening to him preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a whole section about building uh, ministry with wood, hay, and stubble, and all that will be burnt away uh, in the last day of the judgment seat of Christ. And he made this quote, he said, we should not build the church on the trash of our lives. Now what's the point? We should build the church with the very best that we have. The very best that we have to offer. So we must be challenged by this, the second expression of Paul's love. He sends the very best person he can send back in the person of Timothy. Let me give you the third expression. The second, the third expression rather. Love prepares the church, listen, for gospel suffering. Love prepares the church for gospel suffering. Look at verse 4. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. The modern, you're, you're all familiar with this, but the modern day charismatic movement may be the most unloving movement and message known to mankind. Known to mankind. To peddle Jesus Christ and Christianity as the gospel with earthly health, wealth, and prosperity and peace is not only heresy, but a message of condemnation. You're condemning souls to hell forever with that message. It may appear loving, but it's not loving. It's not loving. It's not true. It offends Christ and his, his oppression of himself to the reality of the gospel. Really, that, that message of the charismatic movement is opposed to the gospel, is antithetical to the gospel. As we look at verse 4, we find that Paul models love for the church in preparing it for gospel suffering, which is a reality for the church. He says in verse 4, look at it again, we kept telling you in advance, the word there is to tell beforehand, we kept telling you beforehand this was going to come, persecution was coming, stand firm, it's going to happen, we're going to suffer affliction. This was the loving thing to do. Imagine rolling into town, you have this new message, this Christian gospel, and you offer it, forgiveness of sins forever, eternally in heaven, with Christ forever. Oh, and by the way, you may lose everything right now. You may lose your house, you may lose your reputation, you may get thrown into jail, you may lose your life. But we know it's true. And it is the loving thing to prepare the church for this reality. And what Paul had prepared them for became a reality. They suffered a riot almost immediately. People being dragged from homes into the marketplace, accused of treason. A riot, slandered, accused of treason. Suffering financially. They were giving from a position of poverty later. 2 Corinthians verse chapter 8 as we read. So Paul had prepared them well, what would come along with the gospel. And actually, he was preparing them for what we know would come with the gospel, just as Jesus had prepared who? The disciples. 
in us. In John chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, Jesus prepares the disciples for this very thing. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. So Jesus promises this would come. This is part of the gospel. It's difficulties that we will face here on earth, promised by Christ, prepared for them. They were prepared by Paul with this reality that it would come. And while we know the, the glorious reality of the, the infinite, eternal, glorious truth of the gospel that in Jesus Christ we can be forgiven of sin and its condemnation in hell forever. And what wonderful and joyous news that will be. And we will celebrate it forever, for all eternity, with him. If you're here this morning and a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the promise. But the loving thing for me or anyone here to do or anyone here to do is to say, listen, even if it's that reality, it could be painful here and now. But that's okay. Because of the infinite reality to come. So by loving the church, it means that we prepare her for this reality. We prepare the church for this reality. We must prepare a church, any church, to meet gospel resistance, because it will come. We're seeing it in our day more and more, all the time. But through this preparation, the reason why it's so loving is when we experience it, when we encounter it, we're not to become distressed. We shouldn't become anxious, fearful. And most importantly, we should not fall away in unbelief, running from this persecution. That was Paul's major fear for them. There's another reason we warn the church about this gospel suffering that may come because here's what it does for the person that's truly in Christ spirit residing the word coming in that person that comes up against this resistance you know what happens to them they don't fall away we're not driven away what happens they are driven to Christ to trust in him to rest in him he would care for them in greater devotion to him they want to be driven to Christ and being found trusting in him. See, beloved, the, the persecution is a blessing in disguise because it rids us of self and it draws us to our Savior. We see this wonderful news. Look at verse 6 for just a second. We see this wonderful news. Paul gets later and we feel that relief but also that joy. Paul tells them now, as he's received a report back from Timothy, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, Timothy's gone to them, now he's come back, Paul's writing this letter to them, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. You see, they had been warned lovingly. And what had it done? He had driven them to stronger faith not to desert. And we praise God 
for their example. So the third expression is this, love for the church prepares the church for gospel suffering in our day and age. It's here, it's evident, we're experiencing it, it's going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Let me give you the fourth and final expression, it'll go quickly. Fourth expression of love, as we consider our love for the church, love warns of sin's impending danger. Love warns of sin's impending danger or the impending danger of sin. Now we find in verse 5, this last verse, the ultimate source of Paul's extreme concern. Look at verse 5 for a second. Love warns of sin's impending danger. For this reason, when I can endure it no longer, so see, now we're connected back to verse 1. I also sent to find out about your faith. Why? For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul's ultimate source of concern for them was that Satan, the tempter, Satan himself, I should say, would tempt them because of these persecutions to fall away from Jesus, to leave, to desert. That was his fear. That was his concern. And they were babes in Christ. They did not have a solid foundation. They did not have an established structure yet to understand all these things. And Satan might begin whispering in their air, see all this trouble you're experiencing because you're believing in this King Jesus now. This was his concern. Satan would whisper in their ear, all you have to do is give up this thing. Turn away. And then your life will go back to normal. You'll go back to peace. You'll get your Maybe your home back, maybe your reputation back, maybe your business back. Whatever the temptation would be. See, the natural fleshly temptation for all of us is when difficulty comes, what do we do? We run, right? Or we want it to go away. And so Satan would use that temptation against them. This was Paul's concern to run from persecution, affliction, its source. He says the tempter here would be would tempt you to run and flee Jesus, give up this faith, see what trouble it's causing you. And furthermore, you, you'll just leave this shyster Paul of Tarsus, this false teacher who has no credibility. Everything will be okay. That was the temptation of the tempter. What's Paul's? Well, what happened if Satan succeeded? Well, not only was Paul... Concern for them, obviously, but look at the last few words there, verse 5. He says that our labor would be in vain. Paul was fearful ultimately for their, the reality of their ministry would have become empty in Thessalonica because he was taken away so quickly they would be tempted to the gospel for the gospel. They would have been tempted for the gospel to spring up quickly in great joy than to have faded away when the scorching sun of persecution came through. But Paul loved them. He prepared them for this. And the key implication that we don't want to miss here, if they had fallen away or would fall away in unbelief. Listen, beloved, you need to understand unbelief is what? Sin. Unbelief is sin. 
If they had fallen away, if they had given up Christ, if they had rejected him to find peace again on the earth, they would have fallen away in unbelief, and unbelief is sin. And so we take this one, the implications of what Paul's saying here, one step further, and we have to say as a church, we're going to love the church. We have to come alongside one another, and we have to warn each other of sin's impending danger in our lives. Sin's impending danger in our lives. Certainly the sin of unbelief here, obviously uh, catastrophic for them. But we take this lesson to heart. And if you and I love the church, we must graciously and faithfully, patiently and consistently warn one another of sin's impending danger. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Apart from such external things. So apart from all the physical things Paul endured throughout all of his ministry, beatings, being chased all the time, without food, without water, whatever it is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, all these external things, Paul said, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. And what was that primary concern? In verse 29, he says, who is led into sin without my intense concern? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Beloved, if we love the church, the application here is so clear. We as members of the body must love one another from the pulpit to the home to the Bible study to the one-on-one -on -one discipleship to the workplace of the impending danger of sin. Of the impending danger of sin. We must pursue those difficult but necessary conversations, but we must even go beyond a little further than that. We must make these conversations not so difficult. We're all still sinners in these Fleshly body saved by grace. But we're still struggling with those sins that plague us internally. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And so we have to build relationships as we love one another in the church so that we can openly discuss with one another, hey, you know what? That sounds dangerously close to you getting close to sin X, whatever that is. I want to care for you in that situation. We want to care for one another and warn of sins impending danger, but even go one step beyond that, then we want to care for one another and walk through them with those temptations gloriously and victoriously for Christ. Beloved, do you love the church? I have no doubt that you do. How deeply do you love the church? Do you want to love the church more? Do you want to excel still more in your love for the church? This morning I just tried to provide four expressions of love based on the model of the Apostle Paul. Love ignores the personal cost. Love meets a need with the very best. Love prepares the church for the gospel suffering. And love warns the church of sin's impending danger. You know, in that storm in 1999, we were fortunate. Floyd approached Florida and a strong cold front pushed through. And it pushed up against Floyd, and it kept Floyd just barely off the coast of Florida. I think it did actually hit the coast in certain places further north. But it kept it away from our coast. We prepared. Our foundations were ready. They were not tested, thankfully. The storm of gospel affliction may come at some point. When? We don't know for sure. It could come tomorrow. It could come today. It could come next week. We don't know. But regardless of that storm, we excel in love. And if we do, it will not threaten our resolve as believers in Christ, and it will build us stronger 
in the body of Christ to glorify him in that day. Amen. Let's take a moment bow our heads and hearts in a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for this time in your word this morning. Lord, I pray this morning that we would see Paul's model of love for the church, the passion, the depth, the care, the extreme, even emotional state he was in, not knowing if she had stood, stood firm against persecution, against affliction, but also against the temptation to flee from it. Father, I pray that we take these lessons and we evaluate our own hearts and lives. Lord, help us one step at a time, one day at a time, to apply these expressions to answer this question, how deeply do we love the church, and, and compel us, Lord, not through our own effort, not through our own natural abilities, Father, but through your spirit and through your word to love one another all the more. And Father, may that all ultimately help us to draw near to Christ and to love him more. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.